Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Dr. Valerie Friedland, professor of sociolinguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno. And if you want to build authentic relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friends, Travis Chappell and Eric Skorzynski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. I really appreciate having you guys listen to the show, and I'm really thankful to have you, Valerie, join me on today's episode. Sure. Super happy to be here. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to be watching my words very carefully because you are a sociolinguistics professor, and so your career is speech. Like It's talking about how people talk. And uh, I think it's going to be really helpful when we come to the topic of networking. But before we dive into that subject, I like to take these conversations back to the beginning and know how people chose this career path. Like, how did you end up focusing on this? Because I can't imagine you being in kindergarten saying, when I grow up, I want to do this. <laughs> so <laughs> right, tell me a right, little bit about- firemen, right? Right, firemen right. Firemen, sociolinguists. That's sort of the usual norm, Right. Uh, you know, it's funny because both of my parents are non-native English speakers. My parents both spoke French as a native language, and um, they had lived in several countries by the time they ended up here, where they ended up in the United States for my father's doctoral work, and then his job later. So 
I was very aware of languages from an early age, and I was very aware of the social significance of language because my parents would speak English when talking to my brother or talking to me. But when they were talking to each other about things they didn't want us to know about, uh, you know, like surprises at Christmas or bad things we had done, they switched to French. And so really early I learned, huh, you know, there's some interesting stuff that goes on with this switch between languages and just the way we use languages. And then, no, I didn't even know linguists existed at that time, uh, but I knew I wanted to travel and I was really interested in, in different languages and um, sort of cultural aspects of that. So I went to Georgetown for my undergrad. And honestly, I, I had no idea what a linguist was, but I was required to take six linguistics courses as part of my language major. And I ended up in uh, the first class, which was language and gender. And of course, that really says more about the other classes that were on offer, which mm. were like semantics and computational linguistics that no one wants to take at, at 18. <laughs> so I took that class thinking, eh, you know, whatever. And it was mind blowing, mind blowing, mm. because all these things you think you just do as an idiosyncratic kind of habit, or you say, oh, you know, so-and-so talks like this, or so-and-so says that, and you just think it's kind of things about their personality all of a sudden you see this pattern revealed where it has nothing to do with being an individual and everything to do with being part of a social group mm. and part of a regional group and part of a language group and part of a society. And it's extremely patterned, regimented and predictable. And we have no idea about that. So it was, it was a revolutionary kind of way to look at language for me. And so when I graduated and went on the job market and couldn't really find things I wanted to do. I thought, well, I'll go to grad school as everybody else who doesn't have a job was doing. And I just decided to go look into linguistics and decided to go get a PhD in that. That was really that simple. I just sort of thought, this seems cool. Why not do it? And oh, so five years later, I was out with a PhD and um, I've been a professor ever since. Yeah, it's 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 really incredible. Like I was listening to some of your some of your talks, and I told you right before we hit record, there were some that I could follow, and there were some where I was like, I didn't even realize it went this deep, you know, and all these different layers to it. But uh, I, I am curious because, like you said, our our speech, there's a lot of inherent bias almost because your speech can represent your class. It can represent, you know, you mentioned even uh, in one of your talks, you talked about how hearing how some people pronounce different words, you know, can rub us the wrong way if we're not familiar with it. And uh, you use the example of like, you know, in some some areas, people will say beg instead of bag. And I remember my... Uh, I remember my brother's wife when we first met her, she was like, let me get the beg. And I was like, beg, what's wrong with her? Like, why'd she say that? Why'd she say it like that? Uh, she was from Montana. And so, and like, she, she used that, that terminology. So it was really, it was really funny when you said that because you don't think about that very often. I'm curious because your parents weren't native English speakers. When you were growing up, did you ever feel that people didn't take them seriously or that they judged before really getting to know them just by hearing their language? Like, because I, I got to imagine growing up in the U.S. with two parents that don't speak perfect English, you're going to experience some of that kind of bias and, and experience. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I grew up in the South, so I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. So it's also a place where there's a lot of other kinds of language significance and, mm. and sort of dialectal variation that often has its own set of, of, of beliefs and ideologies that surround it. So, you know, language is very important in the South and it, it really bonds you with other people if you speak like them, especially when you're from a dialect area that's so socially salient, Southern speech. I mean, there's not a person in America that doesn't say, oh, I can kind of imitate a Southern accent, right? 
Right. But how many people say, oh yeah, I know exactly what a Westerner sounds like. No. You don't, you just have no sort of awareness of that because it's not so salient. And we often have a lot of baggage associated with that. Mm. So Southerners are very, I'd say, um, you know, sort of tight with their dialect because it is such an ideological identifier yeah. and it kind yeah. of unites them versus everybody else. And they're also aware of the way that other people talk about them. So then you throw in that mix some people without even an English accent that come in and sort of, they feel like they're sort of outsiders and the language barrier really did make my parents feel a lot like outsiders. Mm-hmm. They were fortunate and they came from a, a language background that doesn't tend to be maligned in, in America. So, you know, for example, if they'd been Spanish native speakers, yeah. I think it would have been a lot harder for them. Um, they were considered intellectuals because my father was at a hospital mm-hmm. and my mother was also, also had a doctorate and they were, uh, spoke a prestigious language. French is a fairly prestigious language. So I think really the reaction people had is sort of that they were exotic but and strange, but still outsiders. So it didn't allow them a lot of intimacy with, I think, true Southerners. But yeah. if they had come in with a Spanish dialect or Spanish language back accent, it would have been a lot harder. And I think, you know, that's what we don't understand about linguistic bias uh, is we it is very, very subtle in many ways. So sometimes it's something as obvious as Spanish and we we know we have this sort of bias against it, but sometimes it's very subtle in terms of a class difference. Mm-hmm. So if you say, instead of I had gone there, I had went there, right? That's something you learn very, very young, how, how you form past tense and past participles. You don't learn how to undo those things no. when you're 25, right? You learn that when you're five. And so you could be a Harvard graduate uh, you know, impressive lawyer, but still say had went because that's what you learned when you're five. And that's not something someone teaches you how to undo because it's a systematic pattern and be judged for that. So it could cost you jobs. It could cost you judgeships. It could cost you things like that. And we don't really think about language that way. No. Yeah. No, I have a, I have a friend from Kentucky and he talked to me about that one time because he was, he was talking about the, so he had like a little bit of a Southern accent, you know, and he was, he said, it's crazy that the stereotype and I never thought of it as a stereotype. Like, it's crazy when someone hears a voice like mine, they assume that I'm uneducated, you know, and, he, and he's not, he's one of the most educated people that I know, but he said, because of my accent, he's like, there's this bias. And I was like, you never think about it that way whatsoever. So I, I'm kind of curious, like, obviously we talk a lot about networking on the show and like building relationships is the most important thing that we focus on. It's, it's the emphasis of everything we do. It's, it's the, I think it's the secret to success in life and business is building good relationships with people. How important do you think it is for us to understand how this, this works? Because, because obviously look, you've spent years studying this, you know, the ins and outs of, you know, you could probably identify an accent from just about anywhere. How much should someone know, or at least what's the the what's the most important thing that we should take away from this topic from from understanding you know the dialogue differences and and maybe our our internal biases about certain things like because obviously we can identify some of like the the top surface ones but what should be our big takeaways as we think about language and differences and how we meet people and interact with them yeah. i you know the the thing we grow up thinking about language is that there's a right way to speak it mm. and a wrong way to speak it and that is uh, the biggest fallacy that's out there and a lot of that is because of the 18th century prescriptive sort of uprising. So prior to the late 17th and early 18th century, we didn't care so much about things like regional and class dialects. 
We wrote in a variety of different dialects of English in Britain at the time. Uh, there wasn't really one that was more prestigious than others. And what happens over time is wherever the power goes, the prestige goes and language goes along with it. Mm -hmm. So as London became more and more prominent from trade, from business and government, um, from a sort of societal elite standpoint, the dialect of English, which was spoken there, became, which was a Midland dialect, became the prestige dialect. Mm -hmm. And it's as simple as sociopolitical accident. I mean, there's nothing about that Midland dialect that was any better than any other dialect. Um, and in fact, in Old English, it had been a different dialect area that had more prestige and prominence. And then in, with the advance of the printing press and also the sort of reduction of class differences that happened over time as merchants became more powerful. So it wasn't really based on aristocracy as much as money. Once you were able to get money and get prestige, class differences started to kind of lessen. Hmm. Well, the way you hold yourself apart from someone else can be either the, who you're born from, which is something hard to change, or how you speak which is something easier to change, right? So as language evolved to represent, you know, merchants and sort of a growing middle class, the upper class tried to differentiate themselves through linguistic means. They published grammars, they published usage guides, they published dictionaries that all held the high elite dialect in higher yeah. esteem. And that way we have this idea of a prescriptive standard norm. And if you look at it from history, it's only a way for higher classes to hold themselves separate from middle mm. classes. But yet now that standard has become defining of what we think of as good speech. The only difference between the standard English that we all aspire to in schools and in institutions and the language that everybody else speaks is simply a matter of 18th century prescriptive norms um, that were established basically to sort of keep the upper class upper. So mm -hmm. if you start looking at it historically and realize that every pattern that we see in language that we don't like today is likely from older English, the prestige norm that has just sort of gone over time to become less favored and switched with something new, we realize that there's nothing inherently better about any form of language. So whether I say had went or had gone, or whether I say ask or acts, uh, whether I say going to or will, whether I say must or need to, those are all just dependent on sort of who we are socially, where we come from, our dialect background, and have nothing to do with our intellect, our sociability, or, or really whether we're good people or not. But yet we judge speakers because we have ideas about who they are. And we claim it's about their language, but it's really an inherent prejudice about those people. And we use language as sort of a safe way to be biased against them. So when you meet someone, the really important takeaway is you might have a reaction or response to the way they talk, just like your friends, your yeah. roommate or whatever, but you have to realize that that is your problem, not theirs. And, mm. and there's nothing about the way anybody talks that's an error, unless they actually slip up and don't pronounce a word correctly. But generally speaking, all the things we hold as sort of bad accents are really just different accents. And the bias against them is just something we've had ingrained in us. It, there's nothing linguistically real about it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and I think that is important is to to double check when you're when you're listening to someone and something's off putting, you know, because you've talked about that, like you hear something that just rubs you the wrong way, and like, you know, and some people are will openly just correct you about it, you know, like we'll say this, just we'll say this instead. So so yeah, the big takeaway I think for someone who's on the receiving end and, and listening to someone talk is like second guess your biases against it where they're coming from. 
but for someone who is trying to navigate, say, you know, networking, they're trying to work their way up, you can't necessarily expect everybody to be so open-minded and thoughtful. So what are some practical ways that we as speakers can make sure that we connect with somebody without, you know, without setting off some of those alarms? So someone's on the other end, they're saying, hey, I don't want to stick out like a sore thumb in this environment. Like you obviously don't want to just eradicate your personality, but, you know, what are some maybe practical things that people could do in say a job interview or in a uh, networking situation that's going to help them not trigger off any alarms they don't want to too early. Right. Because obviously we can sort of help how we think about other people's dialects, but we can't often control how people respond to us when we have features. And, you know, a lot of times we think, well, we don't have any outstanding or salient dialect features, so we don't have to worry about it. But all of us actually have a dialect. And sometimes it's surprising what you actually do in your speech. Um, One good example is umming and uh ing right? The filled pauses we all use, especially when we're in some kind of conversation. It's less frequent when we're in a sort of a monologic sort of context or when we're giving a lecture because those are planned. But when we're in spontaneous speech, like you are in a job interview, like you're at a cocktail party networking, we often use those when we're planning for speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we find is people are actually heavy ummers, medium ummers, or um avoiders. So there's a pattern to your umming, And as I just exemplified there, and also there's a pattern to where you use them and whether you use a higher ratio of uh or um. And that actually can depend on whether you're what your age is, your gender and your class and education level. So we don't even realize that our ums and us are saying these things about us. And that's not a dialect feature. That's something we all do. So one thing you can think about when you're going in for a job interview or networking is getting to know what your linguistic style is. We all have one. Uh, A lot of times we're not aware of little quirks, we'd say, unless someone calls attention to them, right? Sometimes people will have someone say, oh, there's a tone of voice you have, which is probably either a good friend or a really bad one if they're telling you that. But um, they, you know, unless someone has actually pointed it out to you, we often don't know the things we tend to lean on and lean on frequently. So things like like use, for example, it has become very prevalent to say like as a discourse marker. Now, there's I can give you a treatise on why like is not a bad thing from a discourse marker perspective, and there's actually a wonderful history behind it. But short story is people don't like it. People in job context, particularly, when we do studies and we look at the response of job interviewers to like use in an interview, it tends to really lower the ratings they give that job applicant. So clearly not something you want to do. Mm. But a lot of times we don't really know that we use it that often because we're not heavy like users, but we still use it. So one way you can figure out, are you a heavy um user? Are you a like user? Do you use a lot of intensifiers like so, totally, really, that sometimes people think is uh, exaggeration and they don't like it? Those kinds of features that we don't know we use record yourself, do a mock interview, and then go back and listen to it and see what you lean on. It's better to do it in advance than find out in the interview that you have some annoying trait that really gets on people. Because I guarantee you, everybody has that linguistic tick that they hate. And people don't necessarily advertise this. So when you sit down to the interview, they don't say, if you use vocal fry, you're out. But they might not even know it, right? They might might just have something that says, oh, I don't like their personality, or they might be. Exactly, exactly. What's yours? What's your What's your big irritant? When you're well, you know, I, I, I'm a linguist, so I'm not supposed to have one. You have one. <laughs> but I will. I'll say, you know, what's funny is I, I have a thing for L-Y 
on adverbs. Hmm. So I don't love it when I hear people say slow instead of slowly when they should be using the LY and we are losing really? our LY, right? So the car went slowly through the intersection is most of the time now the car went slow through the intersection. Uh, and that's actually a change going through. So in 50 years, we probably won't even have the LY anymore. LY is actually a very old ending from old English, from basically a, a derivative of like, slow like became mm. slowly. So I, I that's just sort of my own pet peeve, uh, although it's a natural evolution of language and it's just the continuation of the shortening of that ending from old English. But that's my personal one okay. that I notice if someone says... Yeah, no, it's really, I'm, I'm so scared. I'm so scared to talk right now <laughs> because I'm like, what? yeah, there you go. Um, but uh, for me, it's really interesting because I found a lot of, of my own doing podcasting because over the last, over the last few years, like getting on the microphone, I've noticed how much I say like, which I, I knew was there. I grew up in Southern California, you know, everybody like, like, like all the time. Absolutely. And I've sat down with, with Travis before, and uh, we've tried to see who can go longer, not saying it. Okay. And literally I'll try to say a sentence without saying it. And I'm like, I don't even know what the next word is. I have to say, have to say like, it. I have to say it to connect it. Well, you know, it's really interesting. So this is where linguistics can help you, right? So I actually, I mean, like is actually a phenomenally novel, creative, innovative new word. And in fact, it is growing significantly. It's It's been likened to a black swan event, which is something like the pandemic, right? It changes significantly our behaviors, this new thing that comes in and it, it revolutionizes the way we we talk or it revolutionizes the way we interact as, as the pandemic has. Like has been likened to that because it is sweeping. It's probably the fastest growing change in not just America, but almost all worldwide Englishes. So you're just, you know, jumping on the bandwagon of something that you probably can't control anyway. But if you look at the patterning of like, you can actually help come up with ways to not use it because then you understand what you're replacing with it. So for example, like is often used instead of about. He was like 12, right? Instead of he was about 12. So that's one form of like, it's called an approximator. Another form of like is called a focuser. And that's where you say, like, I don't know, I want to do this, where you're basically saying, attention, I need your attention, pay attention to what I'm about to say. So that's a focuser. And that is usually sentence or clause initial. The third kind of like is as a quotative, which means it's it's used instead of the verb to say. So he said, I'm not going would be, he was like, I'm not going. So you see, there's actually three different kinds of like. So if you just go, I'm going to try to control like, you don't even know where you're trying to control it. But if you actually understand the pattern where we like, you can say, okay, I'm going to think about instead of like, and try to replace all my likes that I use as approximators with about. And then it actually gives you something to think about and you can do a little better job. So, or I'm going to use say instead of like when it's used as a quotative. So if you actually get to know by listening to yourself, which like you tend to use the most, because we tend to use one more than the others, then you can say, okay, well, I use quotative like all the time. So I'm going to just think, say, say, and you can actually kind of train that out of yourself. Whether you want to or not, it's a different story. I, I think it's linguistic evolution, but others don't share my view. Right. <laughs> The biggest one that grates against me that I say is, you know, I say, you know, a lot. And, and I didn't, I never noticed it. And this is where you said the good friend or bad friend. I was on a, I was on a trip out of the country. I was, I was talking at dinner with somebody and 
he said to me, he was like, there you go again. He said, now I'm super hyper aware of it. But he was like, he was like, yeah, we know. He just said that all of a sudden. He's like, yeah, we know. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, you say, you know, after every single sentence that you've said over the last like hour. And, uh, and so I never noticed it, but Ow. now I listen to shows and I'm, I'm, he was right though, is, is I constantly right. say, you know, and I have no idea why. I don't know if I've said that my whole life. I don't know where it came from, but it's always, I was doing this, you know, and, and found out, you know, about this and I hear it now constantly and I'll hear it as I say it. And I'm like, it's horrible. It's, 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 it's awful. See, Um, it's funny that he brought that up because it's what it shows you is that we are, we have these things that drive us crazy. And um, it's actually wasn't a very nice thing for him to say. Right. So he's basically saying, I don't like something about you, (laughs) Right. right. By calling you out on it. Uh, and somehow we think language, it's okay to do that. So, you know, if someone shows up in a beautiful, what they think is a beautiful dress for a party, you don't say, Ugh, I hate your dress. Right. But you do, we do say that about language. So uh, the funny thing about, you know, is it's a discourse marker and it checks for listenership. And it's actually been studied by psychologists and use of, of discourse markers, like, you know, tend to correlate with people that are more conscientious. So, you know, it's funny because it comes from a good place, right? You're being conscientious. You're checking for listenership. You're trying to involve who you're talking to in the conversation. That's its its role. And yet someone doesn't like that because that particular feature is annoying to them. So, you know, that's where you see this really interesting pool between understanding something linguistically and understanding it socially. Yeah. And that's such a funny thing that it does reveal a lot of personality because that is my, my personality has always been very empathetic people. Like, I want to make sure you're good. Are we good? You know, and, uh, almost to an annoying extent just in general, but, but it's funny that something like, you know, can show that too. Like I'm trying to even subconsciously. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed, if you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, 
You need Indeed. I'm like, are you with me? Are we good? Are you, did I say something that upset you? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's it's really interesting. I'm kind of curious because uh, we, we definitely want to talk about networking on this side. And this might tie into a little bit of what we talked about, but we ask everybody, do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? When you're thinking through your career, when you're thinking through even how we position ourselves for different opportunities, do you believe it's the who you know or the what that's more important? You know, that's a really interesting question because I think uh, as an academic and a scholar who you know spends my entire life reading research and doing research, I would have to say what you know. Uh, as a professor, you know, that is really what makes me who I am is, is this, the difference between me and the students is what I know. But as a public linguist, as someone who has tried to do outreach in the last few years and really made linguistics accessible to people that want to know how understanding linguistics can help them in their relationships and help them in their business, I would say it's too, you know. Mm. So I think it's changed depending on which hat I'm wearing. When I'm a professor, it's what I know. But when I'm out in the world trying to share information, you can't share information unless you have someone to share it with. So then it's who you know. Right. Well, the what you know of a professor, if you don't have students, <laughs> you know, the students need a professor to teach them what, you know, so it is kind of a, a circular, a circular thing. And I just said, you know, again, I've never I'm, been so well, aware. Of the other funny <laughs> thing is the more you're thinking about it, the more you'll say it. So if you compared your like and you know counts in this podcast to your previous ones, I guarantee you've probably gone up three times just because you're thinking about it. <laughs> okay. I have to ask you this. Have you picked up anything that I probably have never noticed that I say or that I do with my voice or anything like that. Just so I can be self-conscious about something else. <laughs> well, I, I think you have a wonderful voice. Uh, oh, no, you. I haven't really. I did notice, you know, you use like and you know, but I, I didn't notice anything. You don't have anything specifically salient about your vowels. I could do some little linguistic tests and probably narrow things down a little bit. So I can have you pronounce a few words and oh, good. we can sort of learn some stuff. So how about, so I'm going to spell them. And if you have a pen and paper, it's easier for you to write them. But if you can just sort of listen, because if I say them, I might influence you or prime sure. you. I don't want to do that. So say the word C-O-T. Caught. Uh-huh. And then C-A-U-G-H-T. Caught. All right. Say them together. Caught. One and the other. Caught, caught. Okay. Do you hear any difference between them? No. <laughs> okay, so for that's called the low back vowel merger. For okay. the majority of the country, they don't have those vowels merge. It's hmm. so if you talk to a New Yorker, it'd be cat, quat, right? Hmm. So there are different vowels, and historically, they're different vowel classes. In fact, you have a merger in every single word those vowels exist in. So if you said a word, so you say the thing they a dog, thought. yeah, well, yes, exactly. Or what's the thing a dog wears around its neck? A collar. Okay, what do you do when you are on the phone? You are a Caller. All right. Do you hear a difference between them? Gotcha. No. See, same thing. But huh. for non-Westerner, it's collar, caller. So that really identifies you mm. as, as a Westerner because that is the low back vowel merger is sort of the characteristic shibboleth of what Western a Western speaker sounds like. So the other example you gave earlier is you had, I think you said someone's girlfriend said big for bag. Yeah. Right. That is sort of a stereotypical Northern cities mm. shift pattern. So someone who says that is, is from the inland North most often. So they're, you know, they're really interesting, fun little tricks. I call them stupid linguistic tricks, sort of like David Letterman's old stupid pet tricks. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's funny. Um, but you have a low back vowel merger. You probably never knew that about yourself. 
I did not know that. I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, there it is. <laughs> it is, <what> it is. <laughs> interesting. So, um, what does that what does that reveal? So, like when you so like when you have information like that, someone's is that purely just location, or does that say anything as far as like you know background or like education level? Or I'm, I'm curious, does. like okay, it does. Yeah, I mean, uh, something like the low back valve merger tends to be very regional in its orientation. Um, it's also age related. So if you interview your grandparents, so if your grandparents are from Southern California with you. If you talk to them, they probably don't have the merger. So it's hmm. it's also indica- indicative of, of age, but there are other patterns. So for example, the beg raising, that's actually a very white speech feature. So hmm. that is actually very ethnically telling too. And what that tells us when people have sort of white speech features versus black speech features is that there is a lot of segregation in the hmm. areas where they grew up because we clearly don't have this sort of um, united vowel system. And you learn the vowel system of the people that you spend the most time with early in life. And Mm. that tells us that you didn't spend a lot of time around anybody, but the same ethnicity. So things like that actually do to reveal a lot about our networks. In fact, Um, that's super fascinating. And gender women tend to be more advanced in vowel changes. So when we find someone who is doing something to a, a very noticeable degree, like you notice your friend's um, girlfriend, if he she had been female, I mean, male, it probably wouldn't have been as noticeable because that's a change that has come in in the last 20 years. And women mm. are usually about a generation ahead of men in where language is going. Huh. In, in everything, but yeah, and where language is going as well. But yeah, that's that's really interesting too. My, my grandparents were from Philadelphia and so they have a very different accent, but- they also exactly. spent a lot of time living in Ecuador as well. So they've got a lot of interesting influences. But yeah, I grew up in Southern California and I was around a very diverse group of people. So I, you know, versus someone who's in Montana in a majority white area is going to be a lot different. So that's right. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And it's at a level I can understand, <laughs> like as far as how that how that works. Right, that's, that's right. Interesting. Um, so I, I'm curious, what's been maybe a, what's been maybe a connection or influence that's really had a major impact on your direction or life, uh, kind of as a as a professor pursuing this career path? Maybe just something totally out of the blue that really had a had a big impact on you. Well, you know, there's a couple of different things that pop in my head when you say that. Uh, one was sort of from a networking standpoint, something that was what I thought was the worst experience of my career early mm-hmm. in my career that turned out into being one of the best. And I think a lot of have, us have those experiences where something happens in a career or work kind of context and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'll never get over this. And in fact, it actually brings you the attention that you needed to get to that next level. And when I was a graduate student, I wrote my dissertation on vowels, um, which, you know, most people don't spend a lot of time on vowel movements. I spend a lot of time on vowel movements. And just to be clear, that's a vowel, vowel, <laughs> yeah. vowel movement. So I was giving a talk in a, at a conference, a major conference, and the largest conference in the country. And for some reason, I got sandwiched between two of the greatest linguists if, mm-hmm. of the contemporary era. William LeBove, who was the founder of modern sociolinguistics, which is the field I'm in, Mm -hmm. and Walt Wolfram, who is also a very well-known sort of pillar in the field. And I don't know why I was put between them. Normally, a grad student wouldn't have gotten in that spot, but somebody obviously did something crazy with the schedule. So I, Bill gives up, gets up and gives his talk. And I had maybe met him once or twice, but, you know, I was sort of in awe of him. He gives his talk. I get up, I give my talk. And in that talk, I mention him and I say, well, Bill LeBove claimed 
that the vowels in the Southern vowel shift were doing this. And I basically took an opposite view. So I was saying, but as Stockwell and Minkova, you know, which is another set of, of well-known researchers suggest, I think it's doing this. I thought nothing of it. People talk about other people's research all the time. Well, it turns out that Bill hated people that said claimed. He said he he never claimed a thing. He reported the facts. That was his thing, his tick. And of course, I walked right into it right in front of him, in front of 300 people. He got up after my talk and lambasted me for saying, I've never said that. I never claimed anything. I report the facts. Well, I didn't realize that I had walked into a sort of long-term issue between some things he said and something some other scholars I had mentioned said. And so I had just walked right into it, said the wrong thing. And, and he, you know, kind of got on me. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. I was crying, you know, felt like crying after I thought, oh, my career's ruined. But what it happened actually is he calmed down. He's actually a great guy. And he realized I really kind of overreacted. So he came up to me along with like 20 other senior linguists and all told me what a great job I had done and how he was sorry he had sort of overreacted. And would I be interested in submitting a paper to his journal? So I would never have gotten invited to do that. And that sort of was a huge journal and it launched a lot of my career. You know, from then it was easier to get others, right? It was that kind of networking and it was who you know at that point. And I would have never known him had I not stepped into it so badly. So that was one of those really interesting experiences where it was kind of reverse networking. You know, I kind of ticked off the wrong person, but then in reflection, he realized I I had really just been a naive grad student and he made a overture towards me and I then jumped in and through that who you know I managed to kind of launch my career. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a really cool story and and it also speaks I think to being able to I mean it speaks to the ability to be able to slow down and say like hey I messed up I overreacted to this and sure. when I see people make gestures like that it's a, for me it's someone that I'll stick with for a long time or reach oh, out absolutely. to again. He's amazing. He's amazing. I mean, he is a great man. And over the years, he has sent me things to read and he has um, cited some of my research in his work. But even more, he has contributed so much to the field and, and boggled my mind with some of the things he found. So it was such a wonderful meeting and relationship to have early on in my career. And I can thank my own mess up for allowing that to happen. Yeah. How important have those kind of mentorships been, like being around people who can speak into your, I mean, obviously your craft, if that's even the the right word to say, or your, you know, your education, like how important has it been to find mentors to kind of guide you through this? Oh, incredibly important. I can't imagine any job or field or even life situation where having someone that has walked in those shoes before you isn't helpful. Uh, But especially in what I do, everything I do builds on something someone else did. I've not ever invented the wheel. Now, I might have pushed forward the wheel, but I certainly didn't invent it. And the only way I ever have learned how to push that wheel forward is if I've gone and read up on, spoken with, and researched the things that people before me have done better than than other people. And um, not only just sort of in this esoteric sense of reading previous research, but I've always done a lot of reaching out to people that I think know better than me. And I look at networking, not as sort of what can you do for me, but what can I learn from you? Mm. And, And I think that's really the key to mentorship is networking and mentorship are really very similar. They're both about listening to what other people can bring to whatever you're doing and make it better. Um, So from my career perspective, senior scholars 
are the thing that moved my career forward by asking them to look at things I wrote, by asking them advice when I was trying something new. I'm I'm not the type of person that jumps into something new without checking it out. And part of my checking it out is through mentors. And then now I, I belong to a mentor organization where I mentor uh, K-12 kids and community groups. And um, I learn a lot from them the same way that they learn from me. And so mentoring at all phases from having a mentor to being a mentor has been integral to every part of my career. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that idea of finding when it comes to the mentorship side, it's that idea of like finding, like, what can I bring to the table? Like what value can I take away from it? What value can I give to, to this opportunity in this relationship? Um, and you, you mentioned something else that kind of that triggered something, but I, it, it totally just slipped away. So if it comes back, I'll bring it up. But I would say, I was going to ask what your number one networking tip was. Uh, would that be it? Would that be going to someone with a clear thing that you want to learn and seeing if they can answer that question, if they can add value there? Is it auditing yourself, seeing where you can bring value? What's the What's the best networking tip you would give to somebody? You know, I think sometimes now my mentors have ended up being people I would not have realized were going to be a mentor. So I'm not sure I always would say the you know best networking mentoring tip or uh, would be go in seeking a specific thing. I would think both with mentoring and networking, um, whether it's it's something you're doing from a sort of lateral position or to learn something new. Be genuine. Just go in because you want to know those people. And and I think that's the only way that people respond to you in a way that actually will really help you and and you'll help them. Because if you're going in to see what you can get out of it, that's a weird way to approach someone. It's awkward. It doesn't feel natural. But if you really genuinely just want to learn a lot about different things, I found sometimes the networks that have been most valuable to me were the ones that I would never have thought would be that valuable because they didn't directly maybe relate to helping me get ahead in any way. They were more just conversations I had with people that we learned from each other. And then later on, when another opportunity came up, I thought, oh, yeah, I know Ruth. I'm going to call her up and see if she likes this. Or I know John, and maybe he knows someone who could help me get my book published, that kind of thing. And so these really kind of funny networks that necessarily weren't to get you ahead in any way ended up getting you ahead just because you were able to use them retrospectively. Right. Yeah, it's it, what's the difference between a relationship and a transaction, right? Like it's it's not just going and saying, "Hey, help me with this." It's right. having that that Rolodex of people or contact list of people that you can go through and say, "Hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking about. What do you think?" And that's what I was going to say earlier. Just came back was you're you're very right about being able to just say okay, I can learn from their mistakes. Like, did they try this and it didn't work? I can go and see what they've worked on and see if it was helpful to them. Like right. you can, if you can learn from your own mistakes, that's good. If you can learn from someone else's mistakes, that's a lot better because you right, don't have to right. put in all the emotional pain and, and suffering that comes with so many of these mistakes. And actually a really funny story about networking. I'm never realizing how people come in handy. I did a, a lecture series for the great courses uh, several years ago for language and, on language and society. And so a lot of times I would have uh, areas that I was talking on that I wanted to draw from language groups I wasn't that familiar with. So there's a lot of indigenous languages that I don't you know, know offhand um, and I'd maybe examples from. But I do know a lot of linguists because I've networked over the years at various meetings and things. So when I was doing that lecture series, my producer would say, well, how do you say this? And I say, I don't know, but I have linguistic super friends and I'm going to call one of them, dial a friend, dial a linguist. And so I was able to just draw on this huge network of people I had met over the years 
for very quirky little facts, uh, you know, like how do you say this in old English? What's the word for this in, uh, you know, uh, an, in, uh, an indigenous language in um, sort of North America, you know, that kind of thing. And so I would get various different kinds of, of questions and I'd always have a linguist to call on. And it was through networking, I met all those people. So it's kind of quirky. You don't really know why you're going to use them, but sometimes it just presents itself later on. Yeah, it's super interesting. And, and honestly, I mean, this is a really interesting conversation and I could do these linguistic tests all day because I, <laughs> I find them interesting, but I don't think anyone wants to hear me do that for another uh, another 30 minutes and get to know all about my voice. So I'm going to move us into our last section. It is the random round. It is just awesome. some quick random questions with some quick answers. First up, what profession other than your own do you think would be fun to attempt? Oh my gosh, an astronaut. You know, if I'm going to go pie in the sky here, why not go explore other worlds? Why not? Why not? If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and ask them anything for an hour, who would it be and why? Oh, I see. I have a little crush on Trevor Noah. So I think I'd have to go with Trevor Noah. Okay. Interesting. Trevor, if you're listening, make it happen. Um, how, how do you like to learn the best? Do you like books, blogs, podcasts? What's your, your favorite means of learning? Well, you know, I, I learn mostly from books because I'm a scholar and that's sort of the format. We don't have a lot of linguistic podcasts at, that talks about research, but I actually really enjoy a couple blogs. So I, I do, in my own daily life, I use blogs a lot. So if I'm cooking, for example, I almost all go to these book, these cooking blogs I like. If I'm looking for some good quirky examples to share with my students in linguistics, I go to this great blog on linguistics called Language Log which is run through University of Pennsylvania that has guest linguists that contribute. And you pretty much can find any topic you've ever wanted to investigate on that. And it's fun examples. So mm-hmm. I would say both blogs and books. It seems like there should be a podcast for this, right? Because there's so much of it is is audio. Like it's it's strange to me. And I mean, obviously I, I know nothing about this topic. So it seems strange to me that like the majority of resources would be written because it, it seems like it would be helpful to hear someone like what we just did. You know, right. Say well, there are linguistic podcasts, but not really for researchers. So, you know, if I'm looking at, I read a lot of research. So, uh, you know, I'm looking actually the methodology. No one wants to hear that in a podcast. They're more uh, bottom shelf, like, hey, here's this, or here's right, a fun fact right. about this. Right, gotcha. right. There are certainly some really good linguistics podcasts out there. Hmm. Lexicon, Do you have any? Valley. Lexicon oh. Valley is a great one by John McWhorter is the host of that one. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I was going to say like, that seems like an untapped (laughs) gold mine right there. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. What does that look like for you? Well, I have kids, so it, you know, usually involves feeding, washing and get sending to school. Uh, And then after that, I like to write, I'm actually writing a book right now on, on, uh, you'll enjoy this one because it has almost every feature you and I've talked about uh, that you notice in your own speech on the speech habits we love to hate. Mm -hmm. So it goes over the history and things like that. And I find that the morning time is my best writing time. It seems to be quieter. I have more energy. So usually kids and then work. Right, right. I I always laugh at that question because I'm a three-year-old. So I'm like, my morning routine is I get woken up at an ungodly hour randomly and uh, try to survive until the evening where I can have an actual routine. So I have teenagers, so it's a different kind of survival. (laughs) Just trying to wake them up at an ungodly hour. So exactly. What's your go-to pump-up song as you're trying to get started through the day? What gets you uh, pumped up? 
You know what song I love is that song Rise Up by, I think it's mm. Andre Day. That one, I just, I find it inspiring. And, you know, the idea that if I listen to that, it makes me feel like I can do whatever because it has that feeling of, you know, you can overcome any challenge. So most of the challenges I have in my day are things like waking my teenager up or trying to write a chapter. They're not major. So if if that can inspire me to, you know, think I could run marathons, I might as well just use it to help me write a book. Right, right. Absolutely. Do, do you, have, well, this raised one more question. I'm totally destroying the random round fast motion. Do you have anything when people are singing that you pick up, be, like when you're thinking about linguistic stuff or is it? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I listen to songs and sometimes it, it, it it's annoying because I'm distracted by listening to, oh, they must be British, Southern British, because I can hear that they don't say the ah vowel. You Even know, if so, they are trying to do like a very American yes, sounding voice. Yes, yes, yes. And actually there was a really interesting article by a linguist called Peter Treadgill that analyzed British singers trying to sound American and what they mm-hmm. actually did. And I did a podcast a few months ago on actually the linguistics of um, bands that I can't even remember the type of songs they did, but bands like Green Day and things like that, because yeah. they did weird things with their vowels. So actually they were interviewing me about their vowels. So I notice all the time in songs. Uh, or if they use grammar, that's sort of non-standard. I noticed that and I'm thinking, oh, that must be this kind of dialect. You know, so it's kind of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I was curious about that. Uh, so maybe instrumental, if you want to get work done, so you can focus in. Uh, right. What's something you're not very good at? Oh, I really suck at throwing things away. So mm. that's, I, I, I'm a collector. You know, I, I can't, I'm always like, oh, I might need that later, you know. Right. Whether it's a book from, you know, 2000 or an article in a magazine that I haven't looked at in 10 years, I might one day want to look at it. So I have a really hard time throwing things away. Yeah, no, we have that in common. That's, I used to be like that really bad with books. Like I'd be like, I haven't looked at this book in 10 years, but someday I'll need to reference something in this book. And my well, wife was like, you, you, gotta, <laughs> you gotta set some of these aside. Like you're not going to go back to this one. And my last question is, uh, you mentioned some amazing articles and, and podcasts we'll definitely link to, but what is one place online where people will find you the most? Well, if they want to just sort of look at some things I've written and the type of work I do, ValerieFriedland.com, my website is a great place, or the blog I write for Psychology Today is also awesome. another way they can have accessible articles versus the ones that might put them to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely accessible. I, I, I was saying beforehand, you know, trying to trying to listen to some, I was like, I feel so lost and out of my my depth. But there is some really interesting and fascinating uh, things that you put out about, you know, say job interviews, things that are very just practical, kind of tactical, I guess you could say advice on some of this stuff. Um, and I, I really do. I appreciate you coming on the show. This was really interesting to me. Um, I could talk sincerely. I could talk about this all day because it's it's really interesting kind of tidbits that I didn't even realize about about some of these things. So thank you so much for for joining me on the show. Sure, it was a blast. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.